We're in the second week of the season of Lent and also the second week of our sermon series in the book of Jonah. And again, by way of reminder, Lent is a time where we intentionally create space and room in our lives for deeper spiritual renewal. We want to see the dead and broken parts of our lives, the parts of our lives that are still struggling to follow God. We want to see those parts brought to life by the power of the resurrection. And so Lent is a season by which we're prepared to become more fully the people of Easter, more fully the people who live in light of this power and reality of Christ being risen. And as this happens, though, we find our passions are renewed, and we find we start to share the passions of God. And this is why we're preaching through the book of Jonah. In Jonah, we see that God has a passion for cities. God is passionate about seeing cities renewed. He calls us to go to the places that need renewal most, even our own city. But as we talked about last week, the book of Jonah is also about how we refuse the call of God. Jonah exposes how we attempt to shrink down our vision of God to a more manageable size, into a God who can't impinge upon our lives and our comfort and our freedom, a God who has no mission outside of the walls of our church, outside of the walls of our home. And so Jonah, he points to us, a reality that something is amiss in our hearts, that something in our hearts still arises and flees from a very good God. And this week, we're continuing in chapter 1. We looked at the calling of Jonah in the first uh, three verses last week, and this week we now join Jonah on the boat to Tarshish as he's fleeing from God. But as we see, God thwarts his plans. And the difficulty, though, that we have to face in this text is that Jonah would rather die than have a life with who God really is. That's a big statement to swallow, I know. But in this passage, we also have to confront how we settle for smaller visions of God. How we settle for less than his call upon our lives. How we would rather hold on to these smaller things, even to our own demise, than let them go and follow who God really is. That's the big idea in the passage this morning. So open your Bibles with me to Jonah chapter 1, starting in verses 3 and 4. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. Jonah flees from the call of God to go to Nineveh. He heads 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. You know, he gets on a ship to Tarshish to try to just get as far away as he can. And this is what we looked at last week. Uh, But now, you know, Jonah can flee. He can dig deep down into his disobedience. But he cannot escape God's sovereignty. He cannot escape God's hand and sight. And this is something we'll see over and over again in the book of Jonah. In this instance, Jonah has set his own path, but the sea is still the Lord's. And God brings a great storm upon the sea, a tempest, a violent windstorm. It was so bad that the very ship risks being broken into pieces. And so God puts Jonah's flight to a screeching halt. And we read in verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea, to lighten it for them. The focus of the story changes. 
In this passage, Jonah actually recedes into the background and these sailors take center stage. It's an interesting strategy Jonah uses in constructing his book. On the boat, we actually learn more from Gentile sailors than we do from the Jewish prophet of the living God. If you've ever watched the reality show, Deadliest Catch, it'll help you imagine this scene more clearly. It's an intense show. You quickly learn to respect the power of the ocean, the power of the waves. And it's helpful to remember, you know, professional sailors. Like these aren't, uh, these, these are strong and burly men. You know, they're not dainty and pretty like me. These are, you know, manly men. They work within the storm as a profession. And so when we read that the sailors were afraid, that they were crying out, you know it's bad. This is no ordinary storm. This is so terrifying that it shakes the most seasoned and professional men to their bones. This is unmistakably a life or death situation for these men. And so they take action. They cry out to their gods. Because in the ancient world, a pantheon of gods oversaw every specific detail of the world. And this is a ship full of a variety of cultures, different people, worshiping different gods. And so they figure if one of their prayers makes it to the right god that can assuage the storm, then they'll be okay. But when they see no answers, they get more practical. They hurl the cargo off of the ship. And this would have been a painful decision. This would not be a cheap decision. This is part of the reason why they're even going on their voyage. This is how they make their living. But we see that they value remaining alive over any economic loss. And so they take a drastic measure in attempts to give themselves a better fighting chance against the storm. These men are frantic, they're panicking, they're praying, they're throwing things off of the ship, they're fighting against the storm, they're fighting to live. And Jonah, what's Jonah doing? Verse 5, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. This is stupefying sleep. Now the ship, it is rocking and reeling and groaning and literally falling apart. People are panicking and screaming and praying and throwing things off of the ship. And Jonah is sleeping. He neither knows the danger he's putting people in or the danger for his own life. He doesn't seem the least bit plagued by his disobedience. He sleeps deeply. And it should make us ask, like, what? how is that even possible? When we deliberately and actively refuse to do what call, uh, God calls us to do, we should expect disorder. One of my mentors, Dr. Tuttle, he said he, he called this the hell of disobedience. When we run from God, we should expect storms, whether this is in our circumstances like Jonah or whether it's inner turmoil. Now hear me, not every struggle or form of disorder in our lives is because we're disobedient, but some forms are. Because ultimately, when we say a resounding no to God, when we refuse to bring the author of life into our lives, uh, we're refusing the one who actually brings order to the world around us. We're running into disorder and chaos and life apart from the creator of all things. And while God will let us run from him, in his goodness, he won't let the path be smooth. But we see Jonah sleeping, not distressed. He's sleeping. He's not distressed. But hypersomnia, sleeping when we shouldn't be sleeping, is, is actually a sign of passivity or depression, apathy, giving up on life. Jonah's sleeping might seem confusing, but it's just a sign of the disorder in his life because of his disobedience. 
When you've run so far from God that you don't care about the disorder in your life anymore. You don't care in the midst of the storm. You are truly in danger. Your very soul has become so disordered that you're blind to the danger around you. Which takes us to verse 6. The captain came and said to Jonah, What do you mean, you sleeper? The captain, he's just as shocked as us. Why are you sleeping? So he says, Arise. Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone? And, and something they says, uh, it, it strikes you and it sticks with you. And then later that day or the next day or even in the week, someone else says the exact same thing that the other person said. And, and you just realize in a mysterious way God is guiding and, and speaking to you through these people the right words at the right time. That's what's happening here in Jonah. The captain uses the same words to address Jonah as God did in verse 2. Arise. Jonah surely heard the voice of God echoing through this captain. When we refuse to listen to God, he'll continue to speak. He'll do that through disorder in our lives, and he'll even speak through the mouths of people around us, even through the mouths of people who do not know God. The irony in this passage is that a Gentile captain is exhorting a Jewish prophet to even pray. The prophet should be praying. The sailors, they're desperately praying. But Jonah remains silent. You know, the, the sailors, they've exhausted the list of known gods in their world. And Jonah won't say a single word to the one true God. The one word that can save them all from perishing. The sailors, they may have been driven by panic and fear. We know that their gods, they were idols. They were no more than wooden statues. But their actions were essentially right. They knew they were dependent upon something greater than themselves, unlike Jonah. Jonah knew the one true living God. His belief was well-founded, but his actions and his belief was, were uncoordinated. He refuses to acknowledge God, even in the face of the storm, even in this life and death situation. But in response to Jonah's stubborn silence, the refusal to act, the sailors, they keep trying. Their persistence to find life in the face of death will not be thwarted. Look at verses 7 through 8. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots. Lots is a divine dice rolling in the ancient world. Uh, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? They've never seen a storm like this. And that a God would act this way is astonishing to them. They can't wrap their heads around it. So they say to Jonah, help us understand. Explain yourself. Who are you? And finally, Jonah opens his mouth. He gives the answer. And his answer is the key to understanding this passage as a whole. Uh, starting in verse 4 and ending in verse 16, this segment of Jonah works inwardly to a center. It's called a chiasm if you're a seminary nerd. But... It's the center that is Jonah's response. And it's Jonah's response that helps us understand everything in this passage. Why the storm? Why the silence? Why Jonah will ultimately prefer death over life? 
Verse 9, it's an important verse. Underline it in your Bibles. Verse 9, Jonah says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. At first, it seems like Jonah is finally testifying about God. He's finally living up to his call as a prophet. He's proclaiming the God of Israel to the nations. But note what he doesn't say. The sailors ask, what is your occupation? Jonah doesn't answer. He hides that he's a prophet. But he's more than happy to tell them who he is. He says, I'm a Hebrew. You should hear him puff up his chest while he says this. I'm a Hebrew. Since Jonah identifies himself first ethnically and only then religiously, it's actually fair to suggest that his ethnicity was primary in his identity. Jonah cared more about his people group than the God who defined the people group. And remember from last week, this is why he's fleeing his call. He's a Hebrew. He's from Israel. He serves the God of Israel. What business does a prophet have going to the other nations, to cities like Nineveh? And then Jonah says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. In other words, the sailors would hear, my God is the one responsible for the storm. But given all that Jonah has done and hasn't done, he's fled and he's remained silent and prayerless. His words should ring hollow. Jonah doesn't fear the Lord. This is a way of describing someone who honors their relationship with God. Someone who says, I will go wherever the Lord asks. I will do whatever the Lord asks. I will say yes before I even know what the question is. This is someone who knows their place in relation to God. Someone who fears God because God is God and God can ask and do whatever he pleases. That doesn't describe Jonah. Jonah just pays lip service to fearing God. Jonah doesn't fear God at all. He's redefined and shrunk God down. But do not be mistaken. Jonah has his own little idea of God. But the true living God doesn't match what he's constructed. Jonah has simply made an idol. And that makes him no different than any of the other sailors on the ship who are worshiping their idols. A small g God he now exalts and worships as if it's truly God. You start talking about idols, it seems a little confusing. This is a an ancient problem, but Tim Keller helpfully defines an idol for us today. He puts it this way, an idol is anything. An idol is anything, anything, anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. You see why idols can be anything, anything at all, our stuff, our careers, Uh, even a relationship. Idols can also simply be ideas. And it's ideas that are often the more insidious idols too, because they're less obvious. Jonah, he's constructed an idol of ideas. Jonah has this idea that God is a Hebrew-only loving God. God is a Gentile-excluding God. He's a God of a very specific people for his very specific and narrow cause, seeing Israel grow and boom. And what's particularly insidious about Jonah's idol is it's actually woven with half-truths. One of the most telling ways you can tell if there's an idol in someone's life, though, is what happens when that idol is confronted. Look at verses 11 through 15. Then they said to him, 
What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. The sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. You should note in the Hebrew, that is Yahweh. They call out to the true God, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. You, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. The storm picks up. Twice, we're told, it grows more and more tempestuous. It's chaotic. It's violent. And Jonah says, throw me into the sea. That's what's required. The storm is my fault. Throw me overboard like the cargo. And the sailors, they do everything they can to avoid the inevitable, but ultimately they pray to God and they do as Jonah instructed. Now, it, it, it looks like maybe Jonah's being selfless here. That he's willing to die to save the sailors' lives. But that's not the case at all. In this life or death situation, Jonah chooses death rather than life with the sailors. Jonah still hasn't prayed. Even in the face of death, he hasn't stopped running from God. He's just changed the destination. If he can't go to Tarshish, he'll go to Sheol. He'll go to the place of the dead. He'll take a watery grave before he prays for Gentile sailors, let alone praying with Gentile sailors to God. Jonah would rather die with his own little idea of God intact, his own little idol intact, rather than repent and adjust his accommodation to see God's desire for all the nations to be included in his people. Jonah has a pick-and-choose little G-God. You see, Jonah's focused on the parts of God that are true. God loves Israel. God called Israel. But Jonah's forgotten that God loves and calls Israel for the sake of the nations, for the sake of blessing the world. And so ultimately, Jonah would prefer death over living with a fuller picture of who God really is. Because when the idol is confronted in Jonah's life, he says, I would rather die than give up my Hebrew-loving, Gentile-excluding, Israel-booming God. And this is the problem when ideas about God become idols. We would rather hold on to them, even to our own demise, rather than give them up. So how then do we figure out if we've shrunken down God, if we're worshiping a false idea of God? Well, like Jonah, maybe we should start by asking, who's the hardest person for you to be willing to reach? Who's your Ninevite? The homeless? Sex trade workers? Their Johns? The drug addicted? The dealers? Teenagers? God knows, teenagers. The elderly? The sick, the dying, the imprisoned, the rich, people of different ethnicities, natives, immigrants, politicians, people who are liberal or NDP, people who are conservative, certain professions, lawyers. Who's your person? Who is it for you that makes it easy for you to believe that God shouldn't want to reach them? If somebody, if anybody comes to mind in your heart of hearts, then you have an idea you're worshiping rather than God himself. Because you've made a God who's only the God of people you're comfortable with. 
People who act like you and look like you and talk like you, value the things you value. But maybe you're a people person. And this doesn't affect your view of God. You truly love the idea of God including all and every person in his kingdom. But let's look at your view of God. Is it easier to believe that God is so nice that he wouldn't want to offend someone by calling out their sin? Is God so inclusive that he would never set boundaries upon people of how they should live? Is it easy to believe, easier to believe that God is so easygoing that he doesn't care what you do with your money and your time and your body and your life? Is God not really a presence, but, you know, just a uh, cosmic force? And is it easier for you to believe that there are no eternal trajectories that souls are set on? There is no judgment coming. There is no hell. Is there any part of God as he's revealed and shown himself in the scriptures that you try to reduce or remove altogether rather than holistically incorporating it into your understanding of God? These are the things that we soften about God or the things that we limit about God, but they're not true of our God. If you do any of this, or you do anything similar, then you're constructing a nicer, smaller, more palatable idol, a little G God. And like Jonah, it's usually so that you don't have to follow the radical calling of God upon your life. And when these sort of idols are confronted in people, I have heard people say, if that is who God is, if it's not this that I understand, but if that is who God is, I would rather an eternity separated from God than a life with that God. Have you ever heard someone say that? Have you ever said that? The problem is that when we limit our view of God, we start saying rash things like that, but we also limit our view of ourselves and of others. Jonah sees himself as a prophet of Israel alone. Therefore, God must be the God of Israel alone. But as a result, Jonah sees himself as chosen above everybody else. He's better than all the other nations and other peoples. He's actually limiting his view of, him, of himself and others. He doesn't see clearly. He thinks more highly of himself as he ought, and he thinks more lowly of others than he ought. God is the one who's supposed to define Jonah. God is the one who's supposed to define Jonah's place in the world. God is supposed to define uh, Jonah's view of other people. But for Jonah, he wants the smaller picture. He has the chance to be a part of something bigger and greater, but his idol limits his understanding of God and what God can do and who God can and cannot do that for. What Jonah fails to see is that Israel is no different than Nineveh. He as a Hebrew is no different than a Ninevite. Jonah is upset at God for sending him to evil Nineveh, that terrible Nineveh that has oppressed and done evil things to other nations, including Israel. Jonah doesn't see that his own evil is just as bad. It just looks different. His disobedience has brought this storm and suffering upon the sailors. Jonah can't see that all people, including Jonah, need God's grace. The evil in Nineveh needs God's intervening grace. So does the storm, and so does Jonah. And Jonah, he's become so blind because of worshiping his idol that he can't even see other people earnestly seeking after God. He doesn't take this opportunity on the ship and say, this is why God has called me as a prophet. I can declare God to these people who are desperately asking, who is the true God? All he sees is a category of people, Gentiles. 
all he sees is their false gods. All he sees is their misdirected beliefs. And he overlooks their earnest actions, their prayers, their desire to find the true God, their desire for life in the face of death. In our city, like these sailors, people are actively fighting against a culture of death. Their beliefs may be misguided. God knows their beliefs may be misguided. But their actions are essentially correct. Can we join people in seeking the common good of our city? Can we pray for them, maybe even pray with them? Can we meet them in this desire to see life and goodness flourish and point them towards what they may not even realize they're actually seeking after, Jesus himself, the one who brings life and goodness and flourishing to the world? Or will we remain prayerless like Jonah? Will we remain closed off to what God wants to do in and through us? Will we remain blind to a city full of people, bursting at the seams of people who are searching for life amidst death? Jonah can't do it. Jonah can't bring himself to do it. He can't see the opportunity for God's salvation to come in a profound way on this ship. He settles for being tossed overboard being tossed into the waves, being tossed into death, rather than giving up his idol, rather than giving up this too small picture of God. But there is something beautiful and relieving in this passage. The last thing I want to focus on. God's hands are not tied by our disobedience. God's hands are not tied by our disobedience. Look at verse 16. This is how the scene ends. After everything that's transpired, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Think about these men. They start by praying to any and every God. They're throwing cargo off the ship. They're casting lots. They're doing whatever they can to find life, and they're afraid. And then we see them progress to being exceedingly afraid in verse 10, when Jonah tells them that this storm is my fault. They figure they're doomed. Death seems inevitable. But the the scene ends with their fear being properly directed. Verse 16, they feared the Lord exceedingly. Jonah fears the Lord, but only in lip service. These men have a genuine conversion to God. Jonah, he'll be thrown off the ship before he lets go of his idols. These men, they will throw their idols overboard to be with the one true God to have life with the one true God. They pray to God. They make sacrifices. They make vows. They give their lives to the one true God. This is a conversion through and through. And Jonah, the prophet of God, has nothing to do with it. He can take no credit. He would rather jump ship than be a part of this salvation. Yet God, in his grace, even uses Jonah's disobedience to bring salvation to others. And this is just a foreshadowing of what God's going to do in Nineveh. God's grace can overcome even the deepest of evils. That's the gospel in this text. The beautiful and relieving truth that God's hands are not tied by our disobedience. Why not? 
Sometimes when you look at how you run from God, don't you think, God, maybe I should be tossed into the storm. Maybe I should be swallowed up by death. God's hands aren't tied by our disobedience because Jesus is obedient for us. Jesus is the one who didn't run from the call of God but walked in perfect obedience in everything that the Father asked of him. Jesus is the one who didn't turn away from people who were different than him or people that were too far gone but turned towards them. Jesus is the one who threw himself into the storm of God's wrath and judgment on the cross so that we wouldn't be consumed by death but have life. Only Jesus is the one who would be able to calm the storm on that ship with Jonah. And even now as we face our own disobedience, our own struggles, our own storms, Jesus shows up. He doesn't sleep through our peril. He wakes up, he calms the storm for us, he saves us over and over again, and he knows we'll fail, he knows we'll run, he knows we'll be disobedient, but he stays. He chooses us, Gentiles, which to my knowledge is everyone in this room, Gentiles, sailors, Hebrews, prophets, 12 scared disciples on a boat, he chooses to save us. If we want to be a church that's called to our own city, a church that joins God in the renewal of our city, then we must always first be a church that is called to who God really is. And if you want to lay down your smaller ideas of God and see the true image of God, then you must look to Jesus. Not the Jesus of our own imaginings, not a pick-and-choose version of Jesus, but Jesus as revealed in the totality of the scriptures by his spirit. Do not settle for a Jesus of your own imagination. Encounter him in the text, in the scriptures. Encounter the living Christ through the scriptures because that is how the spirit still reveals him. Because in Jesus, the fullness of God dwelt. And him alone, salvation can be found. And Jesus alone has the ability to renew us and to renew our city.